Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, Razzle Dazzlers. Strap yourselves in and get ready to be fandangled with another cracking tech talk with Matthew Dickerson. Today we're going to rock your socks, and that's a guarantee. We'll take a look at how drone tech will possibly save your life one day. Rex Airlines is about to take a bold leap and. Headlights are stepping up their game to make your night drive just that little bit safer. But let me bring in the king of the digital razzle-dazzle. Welcome to the microphone, Matthew Dickerson. What's been on your mind, Matt? Well, I'm impressed with a bit of your razzle-dazzle at the moment. You've been doing some razzling-dazzling on stage at the moment. In my brain, I cannot escape it. (laughs) So Chicago's going well then? It is going very well, yeah. Thank you very much. Great audiences, uh, great feedback. I'm looking forward to seeing it next week. Yes. So this week, I've actually been intrigued by the whole concept of how people approach a discussion, debate, call it an argument if you want, but an argument sounds too confrontational. So that mm. ongoing debate that people have about any subject oh, whatsoever. Look, when you sit on social media these days, it seems to be always, oh, see so-and-so get humiliated in this. And we've lost that the context of having just a debate where ideas are shared mm. and they can be opposing or in opposition or whatever. And and, and that's the scientific nature that we, we've got to analyse things. But anyway, I'll we've, let you... We've got to get back to that analysis, I think. And it's quite interesting if you analyse top CEOs from, say, ASX 200 or Fortune 500, it's at the point now that you're more likely to be a CEO of one of those top companies if you've got an engineering and science background rather than if you've got an MBA. So oh. we've crossed the line now because yeah, you think right. MBA, well, that must be to do with business, so that must be where those CEOs have got a background in. But no, what you find a lot of boards are after now, I'm talking about boards of these public companies, is after people that can make decisions based on data, not on, oh, well, I think this is the way to go. Yeah, the feels. Yeah, that's right. Let's analyse the data. And they've found that people with a science and engineering type background have those scientific principles and they make decisions based on that. Well, I would have thought someone with an MBA would have still had some sort of a level of anal- analysis, but obviously, you know, engineers, we know that they're trained in, in that sort of area. Though, yeah, so and you're right. I'm sure that people with an MBA do look at numbers and make analysis based around those numbers. So I'm, I'm not dissing the MBAs here, <laughs> but I think it's interesting that that scientific process yeah. in just everyday life, it doesn't have to apply those scientific principles doesn't have to be just applied in the laboratory. You can apply it to everyday life, and I'm talking about just general debates about whatever. And so I enjoy looking at those debates and being involved in those debates where people engage in a way where they are basing it on some data and some information, some facts, rather than, as you said, shoot from the hip, you see something on social media and then you go off down a tangent, which is the completely wrong tangent, or without all the information, without all the data to hand. And a couple of things come to mind. One is that whole thing about the burden of proof. So if I say to you right now, we're sitting here in the studio, James, and there's an invisible unicorn right there, prove to me that it isn't there. Mm. You would say, well, no, the burden of proof is on you, Matthew. You've created this crazy idea. You've made this bold claim there's an invisible unicorn there. So the burden of proof is on you. You're making the claim that it's there. So it's not up to you to to disprove it. It's up to me to prove it because I'm making the claim. But sometimes you'll see in those debates, and I use debate in a very loose way there, but in those debates yeah. you'll see, well, James, there's an invisible unicorn there. You proved to me that I'm wrong. And then this whole debate starts off and I'm thinking, no, it's it's wrong from the yeah. beginning. It needs to be the burden of proof on the person making the claim. And then the other one that I love, which is an expression way back from the 1800s and it's often used in scientific areas, is the concept that the 
absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Yeah. So I can have, again, if I use the unicorn example, well, there's no evidence there about there being a unicorn there, therefore it must not be there. No, 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 that's, that's not quite correct. The absence of evidence doesn't mean it's not there. You may not have found the evidence yet. So just the fact there's no evidence to support my wild claim doesn't necessarily mean it's not true. I've got to work harder to prove my wild claim, but just to say, well, I can't see that invisible unicorn, James, therefore there's no evidence to support that, so it's not there. No, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You need to work a bit harder to try and prove something there. Well, do you know they're looking for dark matter right now down the bottom of a mine in Stall in Victoria, Uh, so they've set up a whole laboratory two kilometres under the ground there. It's amazing. Um, So so the idea about dark matter has been around for a while now. We've Mm. seen these galaxies rotating at a speed that doesn't match the mass that they've got. So um, so we're looking for this dark matter. When they find it, well, I'd say when. <laughs> um, yeah, that, well, that's exactly what you're talking about. It is, yeah, that's right. And again, if I make this claim that dark matter exists, you prove that it doesn't. No, again, the, the burden of proof is on the person or the organisation or the scientists that are saying dark matter exists. And then they will go out yeah. using scientific principles to prove that dark matter exists, not to say to the rest of the world, prove that it doesn't. If you can't, then I'm right. Well, it doesn't really work that way. So I'd prefer to see that healthy debate, that contention of ideas or different people bringing further ideas into a discussion. I love it when people bring it in based on data, based on facts, based on, if you like, if I want to get really nerdy here, on that scientific process, the scientific principles of how you would do it in the laboratory but do it out in the real world. But it doesn't seem to happen that way, James. And I've got to catch you there, actually, um, because each time we drop that word prove, I bristle just a little bit because science very rarely proves anything. We only supply evidence. uh, And and so if you're one of my students and you're listening, I'm not supporting the use of word proof at all. (laughs) We're we're just talking about giving evidence uh, to support the idea. And you're right. So when I say the burden of proof, it's the, the burden of showing that something has got a more likely yeah, reason right. to exist there. <laughs> yeah, so yes, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant with the word proof. <laughs> I, I take that. Yes, thank you. But that's, that's again, that whole process with, with debate and argument. Put forward your ideas, whatever those ideas might be, but base them on some evidence, base them on some data, base them on a hypothesis that's been yeah. formulated with some data, not just because, well, Jimmy at the pub said it sounded pretty good, so let's go with that one. Let's base it on a bit more. And I think we'll get better outcomes. Mm. And, and the other thing that I think that happens in those debates is no one wants to be wrong. Now, scientists love to be wrong. Yeah. They put forward a hypothesis and they say, here's where I'm going with this hypothesis. So if you can prove that I'm wrong, fantastic. That's great. Let's go down another route. But until you can prove I'm wrong, I'm going to keep developing this hypothesis. Mm. So, and, and yeah, maybe not, people don't love to be proved they're wrong, but that's the idea of those scientific now hypotheses. That's the basis of science. When you're doing a, a, a science at the highest level, you design your experiment to disprove yourself. Yeah. If you cannot disprove yourself, then you must have further evidence. For you want, you're one step further in there, mm. and, and you're, you're showing everyone else the same one. Here's the way I'm doing it. So you go out and run the same, you know, the repeatability, being able to repeat those mm. experiments so that anyone out there can look at it and do it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And if suddenly they get different results, then hold on, what's going on here? If everyone else is getting the same results, at least you've got a bit more down the path, if you like, towards enlightenment. Oh, sounds a bit heavy. <laughs> and there's your lesson for today, folks. All right, we better get into some uh, some interesting stories here. Sure. Now, do you know the biggest problem with paying for things these days, folks? Well, it's not the f- the money about it, the, the, the finance. It's too much plastic, isn't it? Credit cards, plastic. Even virtual cards on your phone. Well, your phone's still got plastic in it. 
cash. There's plastic. We need to get away from plastic. And metals, well, they're just so renaissance era, aren't they? Well, how about this, folks? Dozens of Whole Foods stores in the US are trialling a new tech whereby you can pay with the scan of your palm. Matt, this is going to trigger the non- uh, the COVID paranoid. Uh, let me say that again, the COVID paranoid, isn't it? Well, Do you I see actually, these taking off? I, I do, and I feel like it's a bit like a, a Star Wars. I can just see... You know, this wave of the hand and oh, it's just right. like... Using, you know, the jet, using the force, right? That's right. Just by the force, I just pay for so those. So hang on, do you have to slap your palm onto a glass screen or something or can you just wave it in front you of it? wave it in front of it. So oh. I love the, the Star Wars, I the Jedi feel. I paid for this packet of chips. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you have paid for this packet of chips, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so pay for this packet of chips, I will, says Yoga. <laughs> so effectively, the idea here is that you've got to put your palm print into a database. That's where some people are a bit concerned about this. And exactly as you said, we've got so many ways to pay now. We've had plastic cards, we've got mobile phones, we've mm. got watches. And even I get strange looks sometimes when I pay for things with a watch. People go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool, isn't it? I feel like watches are a bit old now. I'm looking for something else to, <laughs> to pay for things. I feel like I'm a bit old hat Let's now. Let's go back to the palm of your hand. Well, and that's exactly right. So this is based on the Amazon One payment service. So the stores, the Whole Foods stores, uh, 65 they're going to put in all together across the US, where you will have that technology in there. Now, obviously, you can't just walk in, wave your hand over, because you aren't a Jedi, and it doesn't just magically work, you've got to go and register the palm of your hand, put some bank details in, credit card details, whatever it might be, so that when you do wave the, wave the palm of your hand over the scanner, it says, oh, I know that palm, that's Matthew Dickerson, I'll go and access his bank details and pay for those goods, obviously that all happens in the blink of an eye, and away you go. So that all sounds fantastic, it means now, if I just duck down to the shop, grab something quickly for dinner, don't need to worry about taking my phone even, I've got my watch so I can pay for things now... Who cares about my watch? Who cares mm. if my watch battery goes flat? I've usually got the palm of my hand with me. I tend to take that most places I go, <laughs> and I can just wave it over the top. Now, the privacy experts are concerned. They're worried about the fact that somewhere, in a database somewhere, there will be your palm print with your details, your bank details, etc. So someone might be able to hack in and get that information. I'm not sure why they're that worried about a palm print. I'm not sure that I'm that concerned about Yeah, how about is that any print. different to any other form of yeah. uh, payment that we make? I'm kind of a bit like that. They've got my credit card details and my name and my date of birth, or they've got my bank account, etc., etc. Yeah. So having my palm, uh, I'm not that concerned about that. But privacy experts are worried about most things. They tend to go to bed worrying about things. So I, I get that. That's part of their job in, in the it's world the to be worried. It is that. Yeah. But I just think this is fantastic. And whether we end up doing palm prints or fingerprints or various methods, I did actually wonder why they didn't do fingerprints, but fingerprints can be a bit unreliable. I've even found sometimes mm. if I've been out for a bike ride and I come back home and I use fingerprints to get into my house and if I've just had sweaty palms or sweaty hands and because your fingerprint's so small, sometimes some of my scanners don't quite work. I've got to dry my finger or my thumb and then get it to work yeah, again. Right. So I think that the fingerprints are, are relatively small and being able to be used day to day, you can get stuff on them, you're out working, got a bit of grease in your fingerprints or you've got mm. some glue on there if you've been out doing some yeah, projects I'm just with the kids. Yeah, like brickies and stuff that are yeah. constantly scratching uh, uh, prints and stuff. That's right, whereas a palm is much better because it's bigger. So you've got a bigger surface area, of course. We love to talk about surface area. And that bigger surface area means that you're more likely to get an accurate scan. Now, I couldn't find the data 
on the likelihood that it would miscan your palm. There's got to be some possibility out there, one in 10 million, one in 100 million, whatever. Mm. There's got to be some small percentage that you put your palm there. In fact, it scans Billy Bloggs' palm from somewhere else in the world and you go, happy days, he just paid for my groceries or (laughs) vice versa, that's not good. But I think this is where we are headed. We are headed to a, a place in this world where we are using our body for more and more things, whether that's paying for goods or whether it's keeping a track on our health or getting into our workplace with our eye scans, whatever it might be, I think we're going to use more and more of our body parts, which maybe the crime guys should be more worried than the privacy guys because <laughs> maybe someone chopping off my hand to then use my hand to go oh. and buy things might be a real outcome there. <laughs> to duck down to the IGA to grab themselves a packet of chips. That's right. So <laughs> can I just check it's that It's a brutal hand? world we live in. It is, it is. <laughs> Headlight Technologies is on the up and up, folks, and I bet you didn't see that coming. Titty boom. <laughs> Ford is releasing its high-resolution headlights aimed to make the night drive safer. Matt, we're talking about projecting helpful images into the f- in front of the car as it's driving through the night here, right? Yeah, that's right. Projecting images onto the ground. And, and let me just go back a little bit. We have chased, oh, I actually think when we first started with cars, so I'm going back to 1886 now when oh. Carl Benz first applied for his vehicle powered by a gas engine. I think it was patent number 37435 approximately. Yeah, right. And when he first put that patent in, I guarantee that what everyone was trying to do back in cars at that point in time was to make them go faster, make them go <laughs> longer. Uh, they probably carried some jerry cans with them to get the range they needed out of them. And they all wanted to develop these things that were better to get from A to B. And I, I guarantee that it wasn't about safety back in those days. Mm. The first death didn't occur for a driver in a car accident until 12 years later, 12th of February, 1898. That long? Yeah, it took 12 years. Henry Linfield died. And they said That's the reports at the time that is the reports at the time said the accident was probably caused by the high speed at which the car was being driven, estimated to be twenty five kilometers an hour. So yeah. he drove at that speed, <laughs> crazy guy, yeah. lost control, and he ended up dying. Sad story. So from eighteen ninety eight, I think people said, "Oh, maybe these things could be a bit dangerous." You know, maybe we should just be a bit careful with what we do and develop other things. So we've got laminated windscreens, radial tyres. That was a big thing that made a big change mm. to the safety of cars. Seat belts, the biggest single safety factor in the development of cars. Airbags, anti-lock braking, a whole range of things. But still, mm. despite all those things, 1.3 million people die each year mm. for the convenience of the motor car. So it sounds incredible. One of the things that we probably don't take enough notice of is nighttime. We only do about 25% of our driving at night time, but about half the deaths occur at night time. Oh. And it makes sense because it is harder to drive at night. In Australia, we get kangaroos jumping out on the road, yeah. more likely at night time, harder to see them. So Ford and Mercedes-Benz are doing something similar as well, have said we need to develop better lights. Now, you might just think, let's make them brighter. Well, that's okay, but as you know, you're driving on the highway, you've got these wonderful bright lights, and then ages away from a car approaching you, you have to dim those lights mm. because the car approaching you says, oh, no, it's too bright, and they start flashing their headlights at you. So then you're down on low beam, and, of course, you can't see much on low beam. What both Ford and Mercedes-Benz have developed quite independently of each other is an array of LED lights on the front of the car for headlights where they can control each LED independently. Mm. And then there's wow. a whole range of things they can do. When that car is approaching, the lights on your car, at the moment you've got auto-dimming headlights, which I find in my cars works 
uh, <laughs> kind of, maybe, maybe not. It, it dims too late or it dims too early. But what these so types, do you have a manual override? For you have a manual override, yeah, okay. absolutely. But you you want to try and leave it on auto, but sometimes you end up getting flashed by the other guy. I, I never quite understand that bit. Someone says, "Oh no, that person approaching me had their lights on high beam for too long." So I know I'll show them. I'll put my high high beam on right when I approach them, which is going to do what? Oh, Make yeah. them have an accident? Is that what you're trying to achieve? I I don't quite understand that bit. Anyway, off topic slightly. So the LEDs by having an array of LEDs, for example, a car is approaching me then the LEDs can dim where it detects that car but leave the rest of the lights bright. So I can still have great vision oh, down right. my side of the highway but just where that other car is approaching and as it changes, those LEDs change. So I'm dimming in that particular spot. And let's face it, I don't really need a lot of brightness on that car because I've got the headlights approaching from the other side. Then it can do things like start to, as you mentioned at the very beginning, project images onto the ground. Here I am driving along. I've just gone through a speed zone change. My car's detected that I'm still going faster than I should have. Yeah, that's a big one for me. Yeah, yeah, maybe I missed that sign. So it projects on the road in front of me, maybe three or four metres in front of where the car is, the speed sign. So a big 70 comes up on the road in front of me and I'm driving along going, 70? Why has it got 70 on the road there? And I look down and I'm doing 80. Oh, it's truth. There's a change of speed zone. I didn't pick up on that. I better slow back down to 70 or turn-by-turn navigation. And I find when I go to big places like a Sydney, for example, mm. you've sometimes got exits that you're not familiar with. And in the daytime, it's okay. But at nighttime, mm. you can't see all those different exits. And you're going, am I meant to be in the third lane or the fourth yeah. lane to get onto that particular Sydney's one? shocker these days. Well, I find coming off the Anzac Bridge in particular, for anyone that knows that area, when you're coming off the Anzac Bridge coming towards the city, there are a few exits there that you've just got to get right for the tunnel or and going to the city. You, you find yourself in Wollongong or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> that, that <laughs> tunnel seems to be a long drive to go across the city. So that's the sort of thing you could then do is project turn-by-turn turn signals, project where you should be going on the road just in front of you so that you know that exactly where you should be going. Yeah, right. Change of road conditions, you can do the same. But even one time, one of the very early cars that I had, and I'm going back probably... 20 years ago, maybe not quite, maybe 15 years ago, I had a car that had the auto dimming high beam and laser controlled cruise control. So those two things worked and they seemed to work automatically. And one day I was driving along and there was a large sign on the side of the road, something about go back, you're going the wrong way, one of those type of size signs. And the the laser control, cruise control and the automatic high beam somehow both interacted and broke both of them. It was going along and then it just stopped. And when I finally took it back to the <laughs> dealer, they said it got a signal back that was too strong because it was just one big metal flat sign and that seemed to affect the laser. It got too strong a signal for it and that affected that and that somehow impacted the automatic high beam. Yeah, but this particular system, if it detects a large sign and gets a large reflection back from it, exactly the same as it could stop the lighting on the sign or the car on the other side of the road, it would stop the lighting on the sign. So again, you're not losing all your vision down the road by going to high beam from sorry from high beam to low beam. It would just stop the brightness right where that sign was on the side of the road. So wow. individually controllable LEDs to make sure that you as the driver gets better vision down the road, gets more information on the road in front of you, and without affecting other drivers on the road. So it sounds very clever. At this stage, it really is maybe one or two models that they're bringing out with this particular technology, but we know what happens with cars. What's a luxury feature in a high-end vehicle today, you'll pay a lot for that optional extra, you blink and suddenly it's standard Standard. fare in every new car that comes out. So I expect these features to be coming out in cars very soon. That hopefully will make nighttime driving much safer for all of us. Hmm. Excellent. 
Some ideas seem really good on paper, but when they're exposed to sunlight, they wilt and die like the frailest of flowers. Matt, we're talking about the COVID safe, safe app here, the federal government COVID safe app. It's well and truly dead now, scrapped by the federal government. But I guess the real question is, was it ever really alive? I would say no. No, <laughs> emphatically. I had it on my phone for a little while. Yeah, well, I've yeah. got it, and I haven't actually uninstalled it yet, which we're being encouraged to do now. But I did have it on there because they asked people to do it. But at the time, I remember talking about it in various technology segments, and there were two big issues I had with it. The first one was we had other companies around the world who were very experienced with technology. I'm talking about the likes of Googles of the world, mm. who kind of know a little bit about technology. And they were developing apps, and they were saying, we will let people use our back-end technology for your particular country. Whereas our government said, ha, Google, what would you know? We'll go and spend <laughs> some good old-fashioned taxpayer money, and we'll go and develop our own thing. The second part was they said they wanted about 40% of people installing the app to make it effective. Mm. And I heard 40% and I said, you are dreaming. There is no no way known to mankind you'll get 40% of people to install any app. It doesn't matter how good it is, mm. but something that tracks health for something that people may be sceptical about anyway, no way you get 40%. In Singapore, which I, I would hazard a guess to say is a little bit tighter controlled, than Australia. I'm being very careful how I choose my words there, but I, I think people are more obedient in Singapore than yeah. they are here for whatever reason that might be. And they couldn't get 40% of people to install any tracking app, any tracing app. So we had no chance of that. We actually did better than I thought, I must admit. Out of all the Aussies that they said, please in, install it, please go out there and, and do it. They got about 7.9 million downloads. So I'm not sure how many of those people actually installed. Yeah, so right. in terms of say 25 million, and again, we're talking about babies in that 25 million but so out of 25 million uh 30. so they got to about 30 percent so a bit over 30 yeah, percent so that's not too so bad, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah which which is a bit higher than i expected still not 40 it's still not 40 and so this is the kicker though of all the people that installed it so all those 7.9 million people who've downloaded the app and supposedly registered from that of all the encouragement we had of all the work that was being done behind the scenes and there were a few failures it wasn't working when an iphone was locked for example so they had to work out that particular bug of all oh, that okay. they had two cases yeah. so we paid as as yeah. taxpayers we had 21 million invested in this app we had all the government out there encouraging people to do it all the work being done and Fairly unsatisfying. Two. So when you say, was it ever alive, then with two instances, <laughs> two unique cases of COVID that it tracked, then I think, no, that's mm. a pretty emphatic, no, it was never alive. But anyway, now they're saying, please uninstall it because you probably weren't using it anyway and it wasn't doing much regardless, so uninstall it. And the lesson here is specialisation. If you wanted an app to trace something, go out there across the world and we have got a global marketplace Talk to providers out there that do this on a global scale, and I think you'll get a better outcome than just going on and saying, we'll do it better. Was um, ScoMo the um, health minister then, or the pseudo-health minister? <laughs> We're probably the one of the many health ministers minister here. in disguise? <laughs> That's right, probably. <laughs> <laughs> medical emergency where seconds mean everything, the time lag in waiting for a blood delivery may be the difference between life and death. Traffic delays are frustrating at a very critical level. Well, have you ever guessed, well, have you guessed now where this is going, ladies and gentlemen? If drones ever had a purpose from a higher power, 
then blood delivery is it. Matt, drones have been around for a while. What has taken them so long for blood deliveries? (laughs) That's a good question. I'm actually pretty impressed with what's happening in the UK at the moment. We've seen a few examples of the UK trying to develop better drone technology, drone superhighways, use drones for various things in day-to-day life. And it makes a lot of sense. The UK and the times that I've been in there, it is fairly congested in most areas. You go into downtown London, it's incredibly congested. Mm. And so if you can get some of that traffic off the road, Two things. One, you can probably get quicker deliveries from A to B. And two, it's taking more traffic off the road to use it for other things. When you start to talk about... I would have thought that blood deliveries would be a regular thing too. Absolutely right. We're talking... And this particular drone uh, sampling they're doing or this trial they're doing is being done between Lancashire and Cumbria. Now, I'm not that familiar with the UK, but I think those two places are a bit over 100 k's apart. So these are regular deliveries they're doing around hospitals. They're going from hospital to hospital, but this is particular in those two places they're trialling this drone delivery. To get between those two places via van, vehicle, car, etc., you're talking about a couple of hours. Now that's a lot of congestion you're going through. That's a lot of load up a van with a little bit of blood. And normally when you're trying to get blood from a hospital to another hospital for some emergency, you're probably not saying let's take a hundred gallons there. You're probably saying let's take a couple of liters. So you're not talking about a really heavy package, putting it in a van or a car to drive all that way, you're putting something in a couple of tons to yeah. take something that's a couple Not of liters. energy efficient either. It doesn't sound very energy efficient, doesn't sound very efficient from a time perspective. And as you said, we've got lives literally in the balance here. Put that in a drone and they're talking about maybe getting it between, say, again, Lancashire and Cumbria. We're talking about maybe 20 minutes or 25 yeah. minutes compared to hours. So it can make a huge difference. But also in terms of energy efficiency, obviously you've got an electric drone that you just send from A to B. People talk about the coal that's being burnt to produce that power. They're actually talking in this particular example that where they actually come back and dock it, you've got solar and wind that are powering the landing pads yeah, or the electricity have to be there. It doesn't powers this thing. It doesn't have to be. No, that's, but even if it was, that would be more efficient yeah, yeah, than yeah. burning fuel or petrol to take that big one and a half ton vehicle from A to B. Yeah. So they've got renewable power that's powering this. You've got the ability to get it from A to B very quickly and it's only taking what it needs. So you're not travelling one and a half tonnes of goods or taking one and a half tonnes of goods from A to B. You're taking a drone, which is fairly lightweight, and just what it needs. The next thing that I see from this is body parts. Obviously, it's very sad when someone dies in a car accident, for example. Mm. But if there's some silver lining there, someone that ticked the right boxes on their driver's licence can help save other lives. might be heart transplants, might be liver, lung, whatever it might be. But imagine having someone who tragically dies in a car accident, but then being able to send body Mm. parts within 20 minutes, 30 minutes from somewhere to somewhere else. Yeah, I think you've got about four and a half hours tops to get a heart from from a donor to a recipient. And And maybe I'm dreaming of it. Maybe they're sending them further distances than a drone would go. So it might be a a thousand kilometres it's got to get that. So you've got to put it in a plane and get it there in a hurry. But maybe for those shorter distances. For the short distances to get it to the plane, to get it across to Perth from Sydney. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's a, a way to go there. So I see lots of other uses there in the medical field. Sure, at the moment, you can order a coffee and have it delivered by drone, a pizza and have it delivered by drone. But maybe maybe we can mm. find some way of having more of an impact on society than that coffee delivery via drone. And I think getting blood there is the first part of the trial and then getting various body bits from A to B. I think that's a, a really exciting way Next to try and help the health. logical progression, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on the UK and see what 
they're doing over there because I think they're going quite well with some of this technology. Now, here's a headline, people. Bradford duo behind robberies snared by own trackers. <laughs> it's got me hooked, Matt. How was it that trackers were both the tool of choice and the ultimate undoing for this hapless pair of crooks? I sometimes talk, James, very disappointingly about how clever crooks are. And oh, yeah. If only they'd use all their ingenuity and their resourcefulness for good. In this case, I think it maybe goes down the other track that maybe <laughs> crooks aren't quite as smart as maybe we give them the credit for. They came up with an ingenious idea. We've talked before about trackers, various Bluetooth trackers that are out there, or even GPS trackers being used for people to track other people that maybe they shouldn't be, maybe domestic violence situations, various mm. things that have occurred and will still occur when people are doing the wrong thing with them. In this case, two guys came up with this brilliant idea. For some reason, they targeted Chinese restaurants and Chinese takeaways. And maybe because the people that own those restaurants and takeaway shops were very hardworking. They'd go to work early in the morning, they'd stay there and work away and go home late at night. So they came up with this idea. They said, what about if we found out where these people lived? They're at work all day, so we can just run amok in their house and steal as much stuff as we like. So they put a tracker on the owner's car. And then they watched where that car would go each night and they'd come each day and they got an idea of their movement. So, oh yes, we can see from Tuesday to Thursday, they're definitely at their shop, at their business from 6am till 4pm in the afternoon. We've got a huge window of opportunity there. Fridays and Saturdays, they sometimes go home during the day. We won't go then. So they got this little idea of their movements. They knew where they lived because they obviously could see where the tracker went to. So they said, we've got this great window of opportunity to break in and plus... We can also keep an eye on the tracker so that if it does start moving, we can get out of the house that we're in, breaking in and stealing stuff. So, mm, ingenious, yeah, not a bad idea if you're that way inclined. 150,000 pounds of goods they got away with only over a couple of months of doing this. But... Sorry, they thought they got away with. They thought they got away with. But one of the cars that was parked at one of the people's places that got broken into, the police had a look at it and they found a tracker. So they went along to the tracking company and they said, we seem to have found this tracker. It seems to have been used in some robberies. It's not owned by the person that owns the car. Can you give us some further information? Hmm. They found that there was a regular address this tracker went back to <laughs> while they were in between going to the various restaurants and the people's houses. They had it back at their place. So the police just politely knocked on the door and said, we, we seem to... $150,000 worth of goods right. back, please? So $150,000 <laughs> worth of goods. That's right. They, they, they had the brilliant idea of using the tracker to do all of that, but they just forgot that Maybe we should have turned off the tracker when we took it back home. So they got caught red-handed, <laughs> literally with that, with the tracker, with the goods. 15 years jail time they're now doing, so they can spend all that time maybe together. I'm not sure if they're in the same jail, but working on that to see what their next ingenious uh, idea might and that's be. And that comes with a sound bite. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> <laughs> the air taxi concept is gathering traction, folks. You can tell that's an uh, idea with potential when a big business comes to take a bite. And United Airlines have taken a seat at the table and ordered an hors d'oeuvre with a $10 million pre-order of air taxis. Matt, this air taxi business is about to really take off. Diddy boom. <laughs> You're full of them today, aren't you? <laughs> we know that things are getting serious when traditional companies start coming in. 
air taxis, and there are some air taxis already operating around the world, Dubai, for example, they've got companies you've never heard of. And so you think, well, that's a little startup. Will they continue to exist next week or the week after? Are they going to fail? Are they going to plummet? And while, I'm on the, while you're on the puns, I might as well jump in on the puns <laughs> as well. Are they going to plummet out of the sky? No, it's a, it's <laughs> but, a free afternoon there. But when United Airlines, who obviously have a very large and successful business in taking people via the air from A to B, when they say, we're going to drop a $10 million down payment, this a deposit is a $10 million deposit on 100 airborne commuter vehicles, you start to think, oh, maybe there's a bit more life in this than we think. So again, you can just imagine the end-to-end process here. We'll book United Airlines to pick me up from my home and take me to the airport, oh. where we'll then get on a United Airlines flight to take me from... A to B, wherever those larger distances are. Take care of me in That's right. Way. And then when I get to the other end, I'll then get in the United Airline personal transport and take me to the motel I'm staying at or wherever it might be. So they're trying to do the whole gamut from your home, door to door, literally. Yeah, and they wow. believe that this investment is where they'll get there. Now, there's $1 billion, which is the phase one of this Archer Aviation, these 100 airborne commuter vehicles. So that's that $10 million down payment we're talking about there. The order, if they go ahead with this and it goes to fruition, it's $1 billion order, which is not the largest sum of money when you start talking about some of these large companies. When you talk about planes, when United Airlines orders a A380 or a 787, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars anyway. So a billion yeah. doesn't sound that much. But when you talk about a billion in small commuter vehicles, not 737s or 787s or A380s. It's a fair sort of a fleet. It is a fair sort of fleet, so 100 of those. Now, again, this is only in the US at this stage. They're talking about doing this, but United Airlines, it works for them. Then Qantas will get on board mm-hmm. and every other airline around the world will start to say, we know about getting people up in the air and flying from between places. So doing it in shorter jumps and doing it mm. in places where there's no airlines at the moment, I think a lot of these airlines will want to be in on the game. And we'll pick you up your hotel and we'll drop you off at your next hotel. Yeah, yeah. yeah well. That sounds fascinating, doesn't it? And while we're on the subject of innovation in the air, our very own Rex Airlines here in the land of Oz is looking for the commercial edge over the other local short trip suppliers. They're looking to pioneer electric propulsion with plans to start converting their existing turbine aircraft. Matt, this is a bold move, and if it works, it'll send a spark to the industry like nothing else. Oh, you're just still rolling them out Boom. now, James. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a really clever idea. Most aircraft that we've been talking about before that are going down the electric path, they start with a blank sheet of paper, they design an aircraft from the ground up, and so the first thing they've got to do is get the airframe to fly mm. and then get that approved by the regulators in whatever country they're in. Then they've also got to work on the propulsion system to get that electric motor to take it again flying through the air. Rex have said, well, hold on. We've got the largest fleet of Saab 340Bs in the world. We've got 61 operational Saab 340Bs. The airframe's fine. The airframe's been proven to be very reliable over a number of years. Sure, at the moment, we've got turboprops in there that are using fuel, fossil fuels, to run those turboprops. What about if we just took those turboprops out and put an electric motor in, worked out some system with, say, batteries or hydrogen maybe, and then we've got this fantastically good aircraft that's been proven to be very reliable for so many years to continue to fly. Now, part of the process here is they believe they can get these flying and approve for flying, taking passengers much sooner than if they started with a blank sheet of paper. 
I think they're also working on the fact that it's probably more cost effective to do that again from a time mm. frame perspective, but also because you've got all those aircraft already. And again, with maintenance on aircraft, they're fascinating in terms of how long you can keep flying an aircraft for. With all the rigorous maintenance standards they've got and all the components that need to be replaced and the inspections they have, having an airframe that's 20 years old, 30 years old, 40 years old, it doesn't seem to be a big deal. With a car, mm. mind you, no one maintains their car like air, <laughs> aircraft are maintained, but with a car, you think a 40-year-old car would be terribly old and very inefficient, but with the airframes, they seem to be quite good. So they've gone down that path. Now, they've gone down this path for a few reasons. First thing is that if they can get it to operate and operate successfully in terms of competing against other ground-up electric electric planes, they still think there's about a 30 to 40% reduction in noise they can achieve by going from a fossil fuel turboprop to an electric motor. And they believe, most importantly, there's a 40% reduction in costs, in operating costs. Yeah, okay. That's the big one. Now, we've talked about it before that electric... Cheaper air- tickets. Well, cheaper tickets for Perhaps. everyone. Fantastic. We've talked before about electric aircraft. The big advantage for them is when you talk about the, the shorter flights, the one-hour, one-and-a-half-hour flights. When you start talking about flying Sydney to LA, the amount of weight mm. in batteries outweighs the whole plane multiple times over. So we've got a long way to go before we get electric from Sydney to LA, but electric for those one-hour or one-and-a-half-hour flights, that's mm. quite achievable. Now, Rex have said that they will work on possibly some hydrogen. There'll be batteries in there as well, but possibly some hydrogen as well, which I think some of these long-haul trucking companies and some of the long-haul aircraft will probably go hydrogen as well. But in this scenario, Rex really focuses on that market, that that one-hour, one-and-a-half-hour market. You don't see Rex doing large flights. They don't fly internationally. They don't do huge trips across Australia. They typically fly those one- to one-and-a-half-hour flights. So that's absolutely perfect for them. So they've teamed up with Dovetail Electric Aviation, Dovetail make the motors and are doing the retrofitting. They believe there's a huge market. They've said there's about 11,000 aircraft across the world that are in the 9 to 15 seat capacity. Now, the 340Bs are bigger than that. They're about a 34 seat, 36 or 34 seat capacity, so they're bigger. But they believe there's 11,000 of these 9 to, sorry, 9 to 19 seat aircraft out there in the market. They believe that's a US $15 billion retrofit market. So if Dovetail can get it right, if they can get Rex, for example, up and running and they've got them as a customer and they convert over their 61 Saab 340Bs, then they think there's a huge market out there. Now, I'm sure they're not going to get that $15 billion market all to themselves, but they think they can get a bit of a slice of that market. It's a bold move by Rex, though. It's a great move by Rex. I actually think it's a really smart move by Rex because some other airlines are talking about it and they're doing some little trials or they're talking to some companies about what they might do and there's all these prototype work going on but Rex has said you know what jumped in we can just do it take one of our aircraft they're probably going to do it out of Wagga which is where their engineering is we can do it out of there we can retrofit an aircraft start doing some tests and away we go I actually rang the deputy chair I know the deputy chair John Sharp of Rex Airlines I rang him about it because I thought it was a very clever move and I just wanted to get a bit of an insight into it and yeah they're pretty excited about it I think they, they can see a real future here for them to be a real leader in the Australian market. And the price around domestic airports for, uh, sorry, around airports for domestic property is probably going to go up too with the quieter airport around you. Oh, that's really interesting. Actually, we had my son's 21st in Sydney last night and we sat there outside in his backyard and there were aircraft coming in, mainly coming into land and it was pretty noisy. And I said, oh, I've been here before, I don't remember 
it being this noise. And he said, oh, when, when the wind's coming of a certain direction, we get aircraft landing on different runway and et cetera, and the wind coming through. So it was particularly noisy that night. But I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I couldn't handle living. I mean, the university students are that <laughs> hear the noise over the alcohol, I think. But I think in general, it does get pretty frustrating living in some of those places. And you want your air... I lived in Stanmore and Mascot uh, yeah, for about two go. or three years. So yeah. we, we knew the sound of airplanes. Yeah. But it got after a while, it just got to a stage where you just couldn't hear the television. Um, and you're just like, oh, I can't hear the... T- oh, hang on, there's a plane going over. Well, I was wondering that... So we, we forgot that the planes were actually bouncing their landing gear off our roof. And I, I didn't... I, I said that to a couple of my son's flatmates last night. I said, so do you notice the aircraft? And they're going, what aircraft? But they were, they were <laughs> drunk at the time. But but I said, do you notice it? But they didn't. They've lived there now for seven or eight months. Yeah. And they said they didn't notice anymore. As I found it having a conversation, I'd just stop talking for 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and then I'd start talking again. Again, it wasn't every time but you you want your airport as close as possible to the center of the city yeah. but no one wants to live under the flight path so again electric aircraft you're, you're right if it was 40 percent quieter inside the aircraft and 40 percent quieter outside the aircraft that'd be a huge bonus absolutely now we all know that there is something about natural daylight that fuels the soul and restores vitality it's something that we tend to take for granted here in australia But it's something that I gather is very hard to reproduce artificially with quality. Matt, some clever cookies have been working hard with LEDs and they seem to be getting very close to the real thing. Most importantly, they use the word quantum. Yes, quantum makes it sound very scientific, doesn't it? Absolutely. Quantum. Ooh, I'll have some of those things. (laughs) They're actually using quantum dots. Now, by using quantum dots, they've effectively made semiconductors that are a few billionths of a metre in size. Yeah, right. Then they're using that for their light, so they're coating that light in it. And so again, they're getting to that point where they're individually controlling all of these dots. And why do you care about that? What are you going to do with all of that? You're going to be able to change the temperature, and when I say the temperature, not the heat, but the light output temperature Mm. of those quantum dots to give you different temperatures. So when you talk about reproducing daylight, The idea of this is that you can reproduce the day. So as you have the light in the morning from the sun, a different temperature than the light in the middle of the day compared to the light at the end of the day, by using these quantum dots and by controlling all those individual LEDs in these quantum lights, then you can actually have inside, no light from the outside world, inside the light can be replicating that sun in the morning. So you're feeling like your body's, oh, it's morning time, I should be getting up. Mm. And then the middle of the day, yep, I'm feeling like I'm getting that bright sunshine from the middle of the day. And then as the day gets towards the end of its day, it's changing its colour again to get to that point where you think you're outside, right, time to go in and have some tea and get ready for bed now. So it's doing all of that. Now, you can do all sorts of other Looking fun things. Looking your circadian rhythms there. Exactly right. You can do all sorts of other fun things with them as well by being able to change them and use them as disco lights or whatever else you want to do with them. <laughs> but I think the, the but, real part here is being able to actually get those more accurate colour temperatures so that you can do whatever you want with them. But I think one of the things we'll do is we'll see lighting inside offices, for example, mm. lighting inside, probably not so much houses because you tend to have some windows outside so you can actually see a bit of the outside world. But in an office scenario, it's pretty hard sometimes to see outside and so you're relying on that lighting to replicate mm. that in schools, in large schools, for example, trying to get some of that natural light. Even in an area, a large CBD metro area where you've got large tall buildings where 
the sun might be shining, but there's too many shadows being cast, so you're not getting those right amounts of outside light coming inside your office block as well. So mm. I can see uses all along those places. They're not going to be using casinos because in a casino you don't want people knowing that the sun's up outside. <laughs> you want to have the same lighting all, so the, all time. the time. You don't want to have seven. any windows outside. <laughs> you don't want people to realise they've just spent 36 hours straight in the casino <laughs> pouring their life savings into there. So oh, goodness, mate. There's one spot they will not be using them, or maybe they will use them. They'll just make it always feel like it's night time, so you should be there enjoying yourself, even though it's just gone through 48 <laughs> hours of outside light. But, yeah, again, I, I just think we're getting better with LED lights and we're also getting better with using them for low energy. So that's really good as well, rather than just the old-fashioned idea of you know, take a small strip of metal and then heat it up so much that it mm. puts out some sort of yellowish light. Incredibly energy inefficient because you're putting mm. out more heat than you are a light with some of those, whereas LEDs are very clever at just putting out light and conserving that energy as much as possible. But I think the world's onto that. I think many people around the world have got LED lights now, yeah. but just getting better LED lights is the real challenge. Hmm. Very interesting there. Now, on a global scale, EVs are booming. They're up by sales are up by sixty three percent, and a big whack of that is due to the Chinese market, which is leading the charge. Matt, clearly, no one in China has to travel long distances. He says sarcastically. <laughs> Very good, James. Very good. <laughs> it's actually great. I love to see some of the data, and we talked about this at the very beginning of the episode all the stuff that gets thrown around about EVs, and I get some regular reports through that just give me some sales numbers, and this is exactly what this is. It's comparing the first half of this year, global sales numbers, compared to the first half of last year. Now, Mm. so many things that we see comparing 2022 to 2021 or 2020 have a little asterisk next to them, and they say COVID-impacted numbers. But car sales weren't impacted, in particular EV car sales, weren't impacted to the same extent. So the fact that we've got a 63% increase in EV sales for the first half of this year compared to the first half of last year, so we're talking January to June here, that's pretty exciting. Now, and we want to look at where those increases occurred. First place we can see an increase is in China. You mentioned China there. 2.4 million EVs were delivered to customers in China. But the good news is that the first half of last year, only 10% of all sales were EVs. This year, 26% of all passenger car sales were EVs. So when people wow. say, oh, yes, what's it matter what we do here in Australia? Because in China, blah, 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 blah. Well, hold on. 26% of all sales in China were EVs the first half mm. of this year. So that's pretty exciting. When you look at Europe, for example, Europe have been getting the hang of this and there's lots of bands across different parts of Europe and in some parts of Europe you've got incredible numbers of sales but in Europe across the board they went up from 16% last year of all sales to 20% so they were in front of China last year but China have gone screaming past them in the US and I think People kind of feel like the US, they want to keep burning fuel and fuel's pretty cheap <laughs> and they want those big roaring V8s yeah. in their cars. Now that you've got things like the F-150 Lightning, you've got Hummer EVs, you've got some EVs being produced in vehicles that people particularly want in America, they're getting there. Still a long way to go. 414,000 EVs were delivered to customers in the first half of this year. That was 3% of new car sales last year. That's up to 6% this year. So still a long way to go for that to really make some real traction there. Obviously, Australia doesn't feature on the list because we're so far down the list. Mm. We're still hovering around that 2%, just, just under 2%. Just because we've got such long distances. 
Well, <laughs> sorry, that's uh, so, yeah, one train of thought. <laughs> so, uh, but now, when I start then looking at companies, and obviously everyone associates EV sales with Tesla, well, they've been knocked off the perch. They've been knocked off number one across the world. BYD, build your dreams. Yeah, we were talking about that a while ago. That's yeah. right. So they were number one for the first half of this year. 640,000 EVs were delivered in the first six months of this year. Tesla's still very strong. They're number two. 565,000 cars delivered. Then number three is SAIC. Now, that's a conglomerate. They've got companies like GM and Wooling in there. They're in third place, 393,000. Volkswagen Group, they're the real sleeper. I actually think Volkswagen had the manufacturing capabilities and they're still very focused on knocking Toyota off the perch. Yeah. They're really, I think, the real sleeper here. They know how to make cars in quantities. So I think they're going to keep rising up. So at the moment, they're yeah, in fourth place. you think it's going to explode one day? I think so. I think that's that's my little prediction there. 375,000 vehicles from Volkswagen. And then Geely Group. I'm not sure if it's Geely or Geely Group. G-E-E-L-Y. So they've got brands like Volvo, Polestar, Link. And they're in fifth place, 121,000. Not big numbers. But I think Polestar, for example, Polestar, there's been some really good reports coming in about Polestar. So I'm keen to see how they continue on there. But it's a different makeup. Now, when you look at that, when you look at the top five there, you see brands like BYD, Tesla, SAIC, which has got a GM, a traditional brand, Geely Group, Volkswagen Group. You can see some new players there, can't you? Mm, so yeah, those yeah. traditional car manufacturers out there, the ones that have been able to make cars in quantity and been market leaders for so many years, some of those might be sleeping at the wheel. Excuse the horrible <laughs> pun there. <laughs> sleeping at the wheel. And therefore, these other new companies on the market are really getting the chance yeah. to get ahead of them. And then they've got to catch up. And I think things are happening really quickly. Now, I saw an announcement just last week. Bank Australia, only a small bank, but Bank Australia made the announcement that from 2025, they will no longer be loaning money to people who want to buy a petrol or diesel fueled oh. car. Now, that's a really interesting move. Now, I didn't get all the information about why, but part of the logic seems to be that when they lend someone money for a car, the collateral that you're putting up for that is the car. Mm. So you've got a balloon or a residual at the end of that process. So you buy your car, you take it for a five-year loan, for example, and you might say, yep, it's still going to be worth 30 or 40% of that at the end of that time frame. You default on your payments. They can repossess the car knowing they'll get their money back in that way. But it seemed to be that in five years' time, so 2025, jump to 2030, Bank Australia is concerned about the risk factor for them as a bank not being able to get their money back if you default on your loan. So huh. why are we going to risk that? Plus, I think they're concerned that if you go along and buy a petrol car in 2025 and we lend you the money for that, we're maybe doing the wrong thing by you as a customer of ours by saying, sure, borrow that money for something that's going to be worthless in the future, but we'll still want you to pay the money back. Mm. You might say, oh, this is a piece of junk. Why do I want this in a few years' time? And you just park it and say, well, I'm not going to pay you back the rest of the loan. When you start to see banks, banks don't get things wrong that often for their forward projections. So when you start to see banks say, forget about what the market's doing, forget about whether or not Australia's going to have petrol cars for sale, we're going to stop lending money to you to buy a new petrol car from 2025 onwards. That's a really bold statement. I can hear some conservatives from the other side of the speakers there. <laughs> and they're starting to raise their fists in anger. They can't do that to us. <laughs> well, I had a friend bought a Tesla Model Y many months ago. He ordered it. He went down this week to pick it up. 
and he sent me a picture of the warehouse where he was picking it up. Yeah. And there were Teslas, the Model Y, for as far as the eye could see. <laughs> and he said they were the deliveries that were meant to be going out basically from that day, wow. as quick as I get them out the door. He said when he went in, handed over his ID to show who he was, and there were about 20 people in there just taking ID from people, taking them out to their car. There you go, sir, on you go. So just Goodness the me. numbers going out the door, incredible. He was just blown away by it. Wow. Yeah. So things are changing. But anyway, that's a bit of an update on EV sales across the world for those people who think it's not happening, for those people who think, no, no, I'm never going to have one of those, mm. then things are changing and things are changing quite quickly. Mm. And that, folks, is enough razzle-dazzle for one day. I hope you enjoyed the show. Another cracking tech talk, Matt. I hope so badly that Rex can get some leverage with their new venture and breathe some more life into regional travel. I'll be flying ahead before we know it. Thanks for tuning in again, folks, and choosing us. I'm James Eddy, and as per usual, it's been a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk. We hope to see you again in another week's time. 